Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucksters, what's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF, broadcasting from Midtown Manhattan in a hotel room with a living room. I'm not saying it's nice, but it's a, a mid-sized suite, but I'm here for a few, you know, like two weeks. So, you know, it's nice to have a little room sitting in a couch on a couch that isn't mine. That is the wrong fabric for a hotel room. I don't like the fabric when it just, you, you know what? Couches in hotel rooms generally not great. But I think many of you know my feelings on that, that uh, generally if you're sitting on furniture in the hotel room, uh, you should be wearing clothing, a robe, or perhaps put a towel down. And I'm not a germaphobe. It's just that I have to assume that if these couches could speak, uh, I'm not sure I'd want to know. And how often do they clean the couch? I, I don't know. I don't know. This is an observation I think that was once put in my head years ago by a Todd Berry joke, to be honest with you, about bedspreads. And yes, do not send me the pictures of what, uh, you know, those special infrared cameras of hotel room uh, couches and sheets and bed. I don't want them. I'm here for a while. I'm dug in, not afraid of germs. I'm on a not need to know basis with what the... Uh, bedding and the couches have been through i'm just taking proper precautions you know what some maybe i maybe i won't maybe i won't maybe i'll live on the edge and sit on a hotel room couch with my bare butt before i leave i might do that today on the show from a band called the who roger daltrey is here i had a nice chat with mr daltrey back at the garage i didn't know what to expect you don't know i don't know a lot of times from these uh older rock dudes but when you really think about daltrey whether you're a who guy you're not a who guy you know a few who tunes but you also have to realize that roger daltrey was a king among uh, uh rock stars he was an archetypal rock singer he is one of the the guys who created modern rock singing he you think about a rock singer you think about daltrey you think about plant that era you know what i'm saying it's a fucking who, man. And I talked to Roger Daltrey about his book. It's called Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, My Story. And uh, so just so you don't get let down, I didn't, I didn't even think to fucking ask him who Mr. Kibblewhite is, but that's my style. That's who I am. I didn't even think to do it. It's the title of the goddamn book. 
I'm not beating myself up. I didn't think to do it. So another thing I want to address, if I could, uh, while I sit here and after telling you that uh, the other day that I was sort of isolated here by my own doing and trying to justify it as being okay because I'm working, I want to thank the people who emailed me. I do read them, especially if I'm isolating in a hotel room in Midtown Manhattan. I'll read the emails. Thank you for the suggestions. Thank you for inviting me places. Thank you for telling me what to do, what I should do. Uh, I appreciate that. It was all done with a, a good-hearted uh, concern and uh, desire to uh, to get my head in the right place. And uh, who doesn't need that? I hope I do that for all of you sometimes. So the news has been rough. The news has been bad. But... I feel okay today. I'm processing uh, grief, panic, pain, horror, skepticism, despair, momentary elation. There's some amazing stuff, though. I read something today about uh, that monster that shot up that synagogue. And when he was taken to the hospital, a couple of the people that uh, took care of him at the hospital were Jewish. And they did their jobs. And uh, they did them willfully. And I read that story and I just, uh, I just started uh, crying. And um, there is decency and spiritually grounded people and uh, people that are bigger than the garbage culture that uh, seems to be pervasive because of our pig of a president. I think the horrible thing is, is the pleasure that so many of them, and I will isolate them and they know who they are, the pleasure they get out of seeing other people in pain, of causing other people pain, of, of just reveling in, in the vulnerable's lack of defense against their psychological emotional and physical brutality they revel in it and they know who they are and somehow or another they frame that or rationalize that the ones that have the intellect to do so as winning that's winning we're fighting a fight and we're winning and the people that don't have that rationalization a lot of them just get pleasure out of seeing and causing other people pain and exploiting and diminishing and abusing other people's vulnerability. That's how they get off. That's what winning is to them. And that's horrifying. And I think about that and it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't know how you change that because you, enter into that interaction and that's what they're setting out to do it's not about principle it's about using other people's pain as strength and causing it and defending it and if you push too hard they'll want to cause it in you somehow and they will laugh and laugh I don't know I don't know what to do I hope the voting works. Give us, ease up something. 
just a little little bit of hope. But um, I went to the theater the other night, me and Brendan McDonald, my producer and partner in this event of WTF, went to see uh, the Waverly Gallery. Uh, that's uh, Kenny Lonergan's uh, play that's up now. It's an older play of his. And um, I thought it was great. Elaine May was in it. And she was amazing. Uh, Elaine May was uh, sort of pivotal in the early days of comedy with uh, with Mike Nichols, Nichols and May. And then she went on to write movies. She wrote The Heartbreak Kid, one of the great sort of tragic comedies of the 70s. What a great movie. I guess the, the, the point, whatever I'm trying to say here in, in coming off of what I just said is that you go to the theater and you, you, you are in the vulnerability of, of the human heart and it's a, and it's a controlled environment and it's an uplifting environment and it, and it, and it really checks in. It checks you in with your humanity uh, in, in that way, in, a, in an art way. And uh, maybe it'll tweak your lens a little bit out in the world as you go into the horrendous like theater of cruelty, theater of the absurd every second of the day. But I'll tell you, you know, in New York, though, I may have felt isolated for a minute and, you know, I got out in the world. I did some stuff. I, I always think, that, you know, people in New York, they may be brash, but they're decent people, a lot of them. And I, I always uh, once I lock in and thanks to you, you know, I get out of my head and get out in the world, it's all right. It's okay. Okay? I just had a guy walk up to me on the street. He was thrilled. He had his headset on. He just was like, oh, my God, I never do this. I live in New York. I know you're not supposed to do this, but I listen to you every day. I listen to you every day. He's all excited. He says, can I, you know, can I, I, I don't do this, but can I do, can selfie, selfie? And I'm like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. What's your name? He goes, Alex. I'm like, sure, man. He's like, oh, this is great. And then he picks up his phone to turn on the camera and he's got his headset in and he's listening to Rogan's podcast. <laughs> I said, I said, I caught you. He goes, no, no, I, you know, Joe's a good guy. I know you guys got your thing. And I'm like, no, we don't, we don't, we don't. I, do we? I don't think so. I, I think we're okay now. <laughs> the things that people know about us. Yeah, I think, no, Rogan and I are fine. He's like, all right, good, good. And then we take the selfie and he's like, that was so, he says, you know, I've been a year sober and you know, I, you helped me. I listened to your show and I'm like, that's great, man. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. And that happens a lot to me in New York as people walk by me with their headset on and they see me and they go all bug-eyed and then they point to their earbuds and they go, I'm listening to you right now. It happens here. That happens here. So Roger Daltrey, uh, I didn't know what to expect and uh, I'm... I'm always surprised, as I said, with these these guys who have been around a long time doing rock and roll. But he is not only lucid, but very chatty. And uh, he's got a great story because there's so much I learn from uh, people who grew up in England, you know, just after the war. It's so outside of our experience to live in a country that was bombed entirely uh, during a world war. But that did happen. And Daltrey is, is one of those kids that grew up in that and that's a that's a whole world a whole childhood that is is completely unique to me and i always like talking about it. and i've talked about it with several uh british guests uh of a certain age but uh, he does have a new book out mr daltrey thanks a lot mr kibblewhite my story uh, that's now available wherever you get books and this is me talking to the front man singer of the who 
Roger Daltrey. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or need to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts you want, to, you want to wear the headphones yeah nah, no nah, no nah. i don't like listening to myself you don't really no i talk bullshit <laughs> <laughs> but when you're when you're singing you have to listen no i hate i hate the sound of my voice really yeah i never don't do you the, like to- the, the talking voice, or? Do you, do you, talking voice, especially. Oh, uh, I, you know, I, I've grown to, uh, to, I, I guess, appreciate it. I don't know if I like it, but uh, it helps me when I hear it. I don't like to listen to it again. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, again, it, no. While it's happening, I'm okay the, the with it. The sound in my head is totally different than, than when I hear it played back to me. And it's always been that way. Yeah, always been, always been. But I know when I'm when I'm doing it right. You know, when I'm singing and when you hit it. When I hit it, it's yeah. more to do with the vibe, yeah, and if it's moving me, right, than the sound of it, you know. Well, I mean, the the whole process. I mean, I the, I I I play music, but I'm I'm an amateur. And last night, I actually played a show with, uh, you know, uh, Slash. Oh yeah, and uh, he's great. He's great. Isn't he? What a great guy. He <laughs> he's, he's sweet fabulous. guy. He's a terrific guy. And I tell you, man. Uh, you know, as an amateur stepping into that world, I mean, you guys got to hit that fucking, you got to hit that place every night. That's your job. I don't know how the hell you do it. My fingers hurt. I'm exhausted. I know. <laughs> we were on the, we just did a tour of South America uh, last year with the, with uh, Guns N' Roses. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. You and Pete? Yeah, Pete and I, yeah. 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 Slash, <laughs> slash. Yeah. So came up and said, we're going to have to up our game. <laughs> <laughs> but he never has to up his game. He's, he's fantastic. So you guys played South America, what, three years ago? We, no, no, last year. Really? Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Like, to like, that's what those, those yeah. arenas see 50,000 people. Oh, no, the, the, uh, Rock in Rio was, God knows how many were there. But yeah. I mean, but uh, we'd never been to South America ever in our whole career. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah? Was it fun? It was fun. I mean, I it was. I loved the shows. Always loved performing. Yeah, I didn't like going everywhere in a bombproof Land Rover and all that crap. Oh, oh because and the be. police escorts everywhere. Yeah. you know, and yeah, scary. That, not a comfortable. No, not scary. Just like who needs this stuff? You know, Brazilians are wonderful people. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, the divide between rich and poor is so huge. Yeah. Um, but to me, the favelas look much more interesting than the middle, you know, the, the poor areas. Yeah, yeah, sure. Look like real communities. Right. Whereas everything else in places like uh, 
uh, uh, Sao Paulo, yeah, uh, and 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 uh, Rio, yeah. Every house, middle class house, had, had had barbed wire fences around it. I thought, well, who wants to live like this? Right, like this bunkers. Is insane. Yeah, yeah. Give a bit of your money away and get, you know, yeah. so you haven't got this divide. I don't, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, I, why? It, it seems to be an ongoing problem everywhere. The divide. There's no middle, and there's uh, you know the haves and the have-nots. Well, it's not too bad in England, but no. I mean, I don't think it's ever. I don't think you're ever going to sort it. No, it's I, just I don't human know nature. I mean, you, you split it up overnight equally. Yeah. By the end of the week, it will be just as unequal as it is now. Yeah. And somebody, that's, somebody, that's somebody our nature. Will, right. Yeah. Somebody will figure out an angle to get the money back. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> there, it's all equal except for that one guy. He's figured yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did he end up with that? But you grew up. You didn't grow up. Uh, you, I mean, the, the class system. You guys, at least in England, talk about it. We don't even mention the word class in America. There's not even a word. Well, you don't have class. But Wait, then, excuse me. But there. Uh, well, you don't really. <laughs> no, do you? You, no don't. you do. You definitely do. But it's not talked about like that. There's no lower class. They're just people that haven't made it yet. <laughs> yeah, you have money or you don't have money. Right. Or you're black. Yeah, um, and that's that's why the blues spoke to us working class in England because we would we were the equivalent as the black community in America were in the in the forties, fifties, sixties, where they were before civil rights. Right, but you weren't, and, but you weren't and, as and, isolated, were you? Um, I mean, I, I mean, no, they, but you're very hard to climb out of it. Very, you know, impossible to mm -hmm. climb out of it. Uh, and, and you're you. So we kind of understood that, you know. We Just being uh, yeah, hopelessly the, the, poor the, and stuck. We were, well, when, when you say poor, yeah, I, get, I, I kind of like to think about what we mean by poor because okay. we didn't have much money. I was, right. I was, I was born in a, in a V1 raid where we came out of the shelter. My mum came out of the shelters and both ends of our street had disappeared. You were born in a shelter? But no, I was born in a hospital. Yeah. I started to come in on, on a railway station platform, yeah, right? You know, in the tube. But anyway, um, so but that was the world I grew up in. And people say, "Oh, you we, you you were poor," and I say, "No, we weren't. We were yeah. incredibly wealthy because we had the war brought together incredible community, yeah, and family, right? Enormous families we had, yeah. And everybody had to share housing because housing was so short." Because so much had been destroyed. Do you so, remember bombs dropping? No. No, I don't remember. But I remember the bomb sites. Right. Cause mean, how long did that rubble stay around? I've talked to a it couple of people. It stayed around till the 60s. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just mounds I mean, of the, rock. The, 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 my, my book cover, I fought and fought for that cover because it's it's so indicative of what the our landscape was like when I was was born yeah and the first sort of 15 years of my life smoking London, rubble smoking rubble yeah that was slowly being cleaned up and, and new houses built um and your father and it's also indicative of, of of gustav metzger who was the guy who 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 really pioneered uh -huh. you know auto-destructive art so i kind of put the thing together and i thought this is really does sum up what the who were all about where we came from and what we're all about. So Gustav, what's his last name? Metzger. He was the pioneer of that Pete got into an art school of, of auto-destructive art. Oh, things that blew up yeah, on their you're, own. You're supposed to, you know, you have to destroy yeah. to, to create. 
And that was that was what it was at the core of uh, Pete's creativity. Uh, well, it, 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 that that's what they were taught in, in art school, and that it, he, he's always referred to that's where the, the kind of destructive element of the Who came. No from. kidding. Yeah, yeah. So your dad was in the war. My dad was in the army. Yeah, yeah. he was a gunner. Yeah, or or a bombardier as they called it in those days. He he got wounded on. Uh, on D-Day, yeah, he straight off the landing craft on the beaches and blown up by a mortar bomb, uh, and sent back wounded. And he had the shrapnel in in him till the day he died. You know, they didn't get ever get it all out of everybody. And he wasn't even around when you were born initially, right? No, no. You didn't meet him until <laughs> till you were how old? Uh, well, I can't remember how old. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of late nineteen forty-five. So I would have been eight, eighteen months. Uh -huh. But there again, there was a lot of my family coming home from the war. But the one that I'm sure it was my dad. I distinctly remember, as I've written it in the book, yeah. you know, this, the webbing on the boots, the boots. Yeah. <laughs> when you're when you're 18 months old and just starting to kind of toddle, yeah, and yeah. stop crawling. Every every you know, boots are, are enormous. Yeah. Uh, and and that soldiers in those days used to have webbing. On, the, on their leggings. Yeah. And I remember the tin helmet and the rucksack, and I remember the family being around the room where we used to live in Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. Uh, with all the chairs around the edges, the whole family there, and yeah. everybody cheering as he came in. Uh, and this stranger picking me up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> Uh, that ended up sleeping with my mum, <laughs> <for the rest. laughs> which you can imagine. You know, yeah. when you, you know, all of a sudden, there's, yeah. you know, you've been with your mother through quite a lot. Yeah. because we were evacuated to Scotland, to Stranra. We 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 shared a house with two other families, a, a four bedroom house. Yeah, and and the the, the 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 family that owned the house. We're already sharing it with another family, and they took us in and gave us a room. My mother, her sister, and three kids. That's unbelievable. In one room. So that's that's the kind of first eighteen months of my life. And that's that and then all of a sudden, this bloke turns up and sleeps with mum. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? Yeah, this is my place in the bed. <laughs> but that's that community you're talking about—that everybody really showed up for each other. That's that what I'm point. saying. So. When you say poor, no, we no, were yeah. incredibly wealthy. Sure. Did we have any money? Yeah. We had enough to live. Uh, we had no luxuries. Food was rationed. Yeah. 1945 was the f the worst year of the whole year. When the war ended, yeah. the food ration in England was cut to the worst it had ever been because we had to sh share what m meager rations we had. Yeah. Which, incidentally, to give you an idea of what it was, one pound and a quarter of meat would be for a family of four for a week. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. So I mean, everybody was sort of thin. Very. <laughs> sticks. <laughs> Lean. <laughs> yeah, extremely. Yeah, there was no such thing as obesity, that's for sure. And then, of course, when the war finished, what little food we had in Britain, we had to share with the German people who were even more devastated and worse. They were worse off. 
But there wasn't a feeling of tension or anger or resentment or... Oh, just a bit. (laughs) Are you kidding? You couldn't mention a German name in my house probably until the kind of 70s, 80s. Oh, Oh, and and the Japanese. Oh, don't even go near the Japanese. I mean, um, and quite understandably, and I'm sure the Japanese had the same thing about the Americans and the Germans had the same... But you sort of talk in the book about how once you realized that they were equally as devastated and that you know they were just people that there was some sort of understanding at least oh yeah because but yeah when you when i went to germany for the first time and you meet the germans you know face to face and these people that have been kind of uh we we've been told were horrors yeah and everything else and when you read the history it's it's kind of horrific yeah um you suddenly realize why were we ever fighting how did we get manipulated to be doing that yeah, um, that's what happens. But human nature tends to keep repeating itself. That's for sure. So, like your dad, when he came back, now did because uh, I in the book you talk about a bit about how you know, he lost his brother, right, in the war. My dad lost his brother in in Burma. Yeah, his young his younger brother, Alf, um, and I think he was on the the, the, the River Kwai on that. That, that, so yeah. who knows how he died? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. That 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 was horrendous. Yeah. But that, but then when you read the history of it, the Japanese were was tough on their own. They were conscripted at the age of twelve, right, uh, to die for the emperor, right, and they were brutalized from that age. So yes, it was brutal, and that's what happens when you train people to be brutal. Yeah. And you got you you got the feeling that your father just never quite recovered mentally. I don't think uh, many people really, really did. No, that generation. Uh, they've got, they, when I talk to all, all my peers of my age, I say, well, how do you really get on with your parents? And they, yeah. they all talk about this kind of sense of distance. Oh, yeah. And that was, you know, you can understand it, I suppose. I mean, for instance, my mother, till the day she died, if there was ever, ever a, a thunderstorm, we would be thrown under the table and she'd be screaming like a banshee. No kidding. Because she was back in the bombing. Well, yeah, I can't imagine it. I mean, oh, I just yeah, can't yeah. imagine Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it never went away. And I it talk. I only hear about it from guys of your generation, uh, British guys. Like I talked to Eric Idle, Roger Waters. I mean, guys who were they born went into through it. it. Yeah. yeah. Then, and I can't even fathom it that it was, yeah, I don't think people really realize just how leveled uh, London was in England. It was just like bombed to shit. Yep. Well, we held out. We held out for for all those years on our own. Yeah, you know? Churchill uh, was going to hold out. You know, <laughs> take the, Brit- the hit. Yeah, you know, when the Brits get their back up, <laughs> they can be a bloody nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, when did you start, like, uh, you know, finding interest? I mean, do you have you have uh, siblings, right? I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah? How yeah, many I've are got you? Two sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you start sort of realizing that uh, that music was the thing? That wasn't until uh, we had. There was always music in those days, and the great thing about that period, yeah, is that if you wanted anything, you had to make it yourself. You had to do it yourself, right? And then, then of course, to get through the war, people used to sing a lot. Oh yeah, uh, you know when the bomb went in the air raid started, people used to start singing, <laughs> and the, the louder the bombing got, the more they used to sing. What were they singing? <laughs> 
Oh, all kinds of, you know, there were folk songs and stuff. No, no, all kind of cockney songs, you know, roll out the barrel, you know, oh, any, <laughs> any of those kind of, you know, you know yeah, just get your of, mind off it. Yeah. Get it loud. And, and Hitler could never understand it. You know? yeah. The more he bombed us, the more we sang. <laughs> <laughs> that was your big weapon. Yeah, that, that was, was the weapon. <laughs> but you can understand, I suppose, you know, to drown out the bombing. And so everywhere you went when i was young people would be singing the postman would sing the milkman would sing the big people on building sites would sing yeah just to hear it all the time i mean you probably did in your when I mean, you were growing up more than you do today i guess i, I you don't, never hear anyone singing today on the street no they're they've got their headphones on if they're um, singing they don't know that anyone's no, listening they're, to they're them dead on the street yeah it's a little bit between the phones and the headphones it's a little scary got, a just little like, scary <laughs> are you kidding me this terrifying <laughs> Life, life's not down it's looking up yeah it's true it's i've noticed that oh it's the biggest addiction i mean it is the the psychological ramifications of this lot are going to be horrendous to deal with yeah if we make it through we'll see (laughs) this might be the last lot no i'm on the way out mate (laughs) i know you you made it under the wire (laughs) but so everyone's singing well that's pleasant uh but when did you like uh, like what kind of so anyway then we got our first tv which was a tiny little twelve-inch screen. Did you have musicians in your family or not? No, my 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 mother's brother. Yeah, played drum, played drums in a little traditional jazz band. Oh yeah, you know, and again playing yeah playing kind of trad jazz like New Orleans type jazz. Yeah. So he and he loved Hank Williams. So I I was I was attuned to music because on the radio all day they would have. Pro, when I first got my first job in, in, in a laundry when I was 12 to get some money to p- buy the bits to make my first guitar, the, there was a, there was music on the radio all day. I used to have things like workers' playtime yeah. where everybody in the factory would sing along to the radio. Oh, my God. It really was <laughs> yeah, a lot of singing. Yeah. Oh, no, it was unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Wait. so and then, But then we got our first TV, which was a 12-inch black and white set. You know, I mean, when you see a 12-inch set today, it's about as, well, it's, it's half, a big of a, It's a phone. A, it's a phone now. Yeah, exactly. It's a phone. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it was. But this thing was magical. When yeah. One day I saw this guy and he was making a noise and singing and he had this look and it was Elvis Presley. And I thought, wow, that was Interesting. Elvis really knocked you guys out. Yeah, over he there. really knocked yeah. us out. I mean, so we all rushed for the. <laughs> you know, we all thought, "Wow, we want to look like that." Uh, no way could we get any grease or any brill cream to do our hair back. So we all rushed to the bathroom and got the soap. Yeah, <laughs> just wicked it up. <laughs> we, did, yeah, we did the same job. Yeah, <laughs> and we have very clean hair. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and all, and of course, all thought we looked like Elvis. No? Yeah. But equally, that just got us interested in this is this is a new kind of music. This got your foot tapping. So you know? this is like fifty seven, fifty eight. Yeah, fifty. Yeah, probably fifty six, fifty seven. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, then anyway, very soon after that, yeah, this other guy comes on the TV who's not like Elvis at all because Elvis was cool. He had like collar turned uh-huh. up, and he had that kind of what was, what would you call that jacket he had on. Kind of shark suit. skin jacket, well, shark skin. Of, oh, that suit, suit yeah, suit. Kind yeah, of jacket, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Those baggy trousers, but yeah. with tight bottoms. Yeah, yeah. With his leg waggling, you yeah. Know? But then this other guy came on the TV, and he's wearing a, a DJ, a dinner jacket, 
white shirt, crisp white shirt, and a dicky bow tie, you know, dressed up, you know, for a, a, you know, a, a proper function. Yeah. Who was that? And it was a guy called Lonnie Donegan. And he's playing an acoustic guitar, just like Elvis, but he's, this guy's really seriously playing the thing. Lonnie can. And he's singing these kind of songs, which were early American folk songs. Things like Midnight Special, yeah. Bring a Little War of Sylvie, yeah. You know, uh, Ham and Eggs, the all kind of that's a chain gang song, um, like Lead Belly stuff and yeah, yeah Lead Belly stuff. stuff yeah. But it was the way he sang it, and it was something in the way Lonnie sang, unlike Elvis, that was primal. Uh -huh. And I thought that's what I want to do, and I can do that. But, I already knew I could sing because I'd been in the church choir at around about seven years old. Yeah. Um, not that I wanted to sing that that kind of stuff, right? But Lonnie inspired me because he threw his head back and he just let himself go, and it, there was a kind of freedom. Belted out, yeah, and, yeah, and, and and that got me that primal quality. That's interesting. So it wasn't it wasn't the sort of uh, kind of um, revolutionary vibe of rock and roll. It was really the deeper sort of seem, seemingly more honest. Oh, no, oh yeah, I mean. Bit, bit, <laughs> rock and roll then was Bill Haley that was it Elvis Little Richard and, and Chuck Berry were in the background but we hadn't heard them in, yeah. in Britain because, but it was the, it was the you know you've got to remember our music was very much controlled by the BBC in those well, years you had to wait till someone brought the records over yeah. from America to, yeah yeah we had to yeah. wait for, for, for that and Unfortunately for us, we had a lot of GIs in the country. Yeah, that's right. That's what. And we again, the... we had a lot of black GIs who yeah. brought us the blues over and and all that stuff. Yeah. So when you first started out, so what, what the thing that moved you was folk music, and and that's what you started to play, or did you? What what were you playing? At, we uh, played skiffle. And see, well, the thing saying... about the thing about what Lonnie was playing, yeah, we could all have a go at it. Yeah, what is like, skiffle was, exactly? It's 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 those early songs done yeah. in in, um, but it, it improvised. You know, um, t for a bass you had a, a tea chest, a w which is a wooden box yeah. of thin plywood, about uh, a cube, about two foot two foot right, uh, and the string two, and like a broomstick, two, yeah, a broomstick, a, st a string and a broomstick. And you put your foot on it and you tighten up the string to get a high note and let it go for a low note. Played well. That can sound every bit as good as a, as a, a pro proper bass. And did you say you were building a bass. guitar? I had to build a guitar. I couldn't afford to buy one. I, someone from my father's uh, uh, place, place of work yeah. lent me one to copy. Yeah. A Spanish guitar. I kind of looked at it and thought, oh, yeah, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. Got to you do built that. a guitar? Yeah. And uh, got some plywood, cut it out, and glued it all together in the way I'd seen that this thing was made. Uh -huh. uh, trimmed it all up with a pen knife around the edges, because they were a bit rough where I joined the sides. Uh -huh. But then got some sandpaper and got it all looking quite good. Uh, some button polish for a, a finish. And it sounded okay? Uh, it sounded... I don't know what it good enough prob probably sounded awful, but to me it sounded like what I wanted was a guitar. Uh, I didn't know anything about intonation. I didn't know anything about the the. You know, I copied this guitar that worked well. 
I didn't understand about you know the way you have to adjust, it. Yeah. adjust the bridge sure, and all sure, that yeah. thing. I could tune the thing in the same way as this other guitar could be tuned. Yeah. Um, the action of it would have made a better <laughs> cheese cutter than ever ever a guitar yeah. would have ever been. Yeah. Um, but I could, I could learn the three chords you needed to play most of the songs of the time. The one, the four, and the five. E, yeah, which was E, A, and B seven. Yeah, yeah, right. And if you could play those three chords, you could do all most of the skiffle songs. So immediately then you start a band, other people, someone gets a T-chest bass and they start playing the bass. Yeah. And then someone else goes and gets gets a washboard or with a, with a hubcap for a cymbal. And you, you... You did it. Yeah, you just make this noise. People started singing, you sing the harmonies. And there were good skiffle bands. There were bad skiffle bands. But there were skiffle bands on every street. So it was wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah, it's it's sort of amazing that 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 the part of the the craft or the appeal of the music is that because whatever your economic standings were, you you would go out and you'd find or create the instrument and you'd just get into it. Well, when you when you're growing up in a society that's been leveled, you've got no 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 choice but to build. Yeah, and there's you, plenty of, uh, of of junk around to build things out of. I would imagine. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but the junk was pretty destroyed. Oh, okay. <laughs> nothing. No. I think that's highly imaginative. Yeah, no hubcaps. No. <laughs> well, the hubcaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, auto there's, parts. There's always going to be a hubcap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hubcaps and ball bearings. Yeah. So, so how long? That, now, when you were, were you working as well when you were in the band? No, no. This was the, my first guitar. It was was around about the age of twelve, between eleven and twelve. You're working at the laundry, and uh, uh, that's what I worked at the laundry yeah. to get the money to buy the yeah. parts for it. And that guitar lasted about six weeks, and then it, and <laughs> because the one thing I <laughs> never short, quite short run <laughs> not being 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 any kind of carpenter whatsoever, never ever done anything like this before yeah. in my life. I had no idea how to join the neck of the guitar to the body of the guitar. Right. And it, and it folded up. In, 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 in six weeks, it just yeah. went ding, you know, completely useless. Yeah. But I got lucky that, that, that my uncle was, was, a, was a proper skilled craftsman, yeah. carpenter. And he watched me struggle in making this thing and let me get on with it. Yeah. But he was so impressed that I'd actually built something that worked and heard what I was doing with it. He said, I'll help you do the next one. So I made it to the next one with the help from my uncle and he showed me how to join the neck to the body. Yeah. We didn't know anything about truss rods through the neck to sure. keep the neck straight. Right. Still didn't quite understand intonation. Yeah. But the second guitar was probably 500% better than the first one. <laughs> And it lasted for probably about eighteen months. To, wow! Yeah, to, to, uh, um, I reckon. I reckon that guitar lasted me. It certainly lasted me till I was um, into my fifteenth year, maybe two years. That guitar. And you were what primarily playing on the street, or where were you playing? Oh, youth clubs. Yeah, youth clubs. We occasionally, you know, got invited to. There were competitions. Always the best skiffle band in in Hammersmith. We won. A competition once. Who was in that. the band with you? How many people? There was a. Uh, there was myself. There was our who became our first drummer, Harry Wilson, uh, on drums. The, uh, my, my mate Reggie Chaplin on 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 the T chest bass. 
Ian Moody was on the washboard because he looked great. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to look great with a washboard. Face. Yeah, no, but uh, but <laughs> we didn't care what he played because he looked cool. Yeah, right. He, Ian was one of those it's guys a, who, it's not, you know, had a coolness about him. You know, so I've got to have him in the band. I tell you, man, if you can look cool with a washboard, you really got something. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Um, so we used to play, we occasionally got kind of asked, would you come and play at our wedding? Yeah. And then they'd give us a drink at the end of the night and they'd give us a few bob. So wow. that was good. I can't, it's so, it, it's so, uh, that whole sound and that whole setup, it sounds so primitive, but it was popular. It was popular. Yeah. And you've got to remember in those days, like I said, getting back to the fact that music was everywhere, every pub you went past, there'd be someone on a piano. Yeah. And sure enough, usually most, especially at the weekends, from the Friday night till the Sunday night, lunchtime, you know, Friday evening to every Saturday lunchtime, Saturday night, Sunday lunchtime, Sunday yeah. night, they'd be singing and the piano going out of most pubs in the area in those days. It was, it was you know, important. all those all, all those old-fashioned Cockney songs. It's important to the, uh, to the mental health of the culture. Well, the booze was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the music, I would hope. No, yeah. the of course the music was. It's something. There's something wonderful happens when you sing. Yeah. When groups sing together, I mean, it's you know we, they, we know now, but when a choir sings together, their oh, their heartbeats yeah. go down to the same rhythm. But when I watch, you know, like it's, if it's, I, it's metaphysical this stuff. It's, no, I think so. Much, when much I go more. watch a musical, like I'm, I don't go see a lot of them, but I, even if it's happy, I'm, I'm crying. <laughs> because it's so it, it, the power of so many people singing is really emotional it's that's overwhelming what, to me that's what I that, that's what we Brits don't quite understand you hopefully you will get it what because you've got soccer taking on quite big in this country which is great yeah it is the most beautiful you country. love it yeah yeah it, and, it, and it knocks your f football to a high hat you know? is this, <laughs> and, it, is this... and but what you what you haven't got yet but hopefully you will get, yeah you haven't got the anthems and the singing <laughs> because english crowds sing yeah. and when you sit in a crowd watching a a, a a soccer game in england yeah and the crowd are singing it's just wonderful. Yeah. That noise yeah. of 50,000 people, not all singing the same song even, but it's just the noise of voices doing that. It's extraordinary. I bet. Well, have you had that happen when the Who's been on stage? Of, of course. Well, so we have. I mean, we, we played Mexico City uh, about four years ago, uh, first time again we'd ever yeah. been been to Mexico. Um and 19,000 people showed up. We thought, we're never going to get anybody. We've never, yeah. we've never been to Mexico. <laughs> really? Um, you thought that? Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, this 19,000 people, yeah. the pe place, place was sold out. Yeah. They sang almost louder than we were playing. Yeah. Most, they knew every word. It was extraordinary. I bet. I bet. I can't even imagine it. Yeah. yeah. So when does rock and roll start filtering in? Because like, and, and also, like, where, where you were... Like the thing I find fascinating about talking to you guys of of, uh, uh, of this time in in London and in England is that like there was you know once rock and roll started to happen and the blues started to happen you all kind of were around right you saw each other a bit yeah that's much later on though yeah so like where, how, well, where's been, you, there's a big kind of growth pattern there we first, then we heard then we started to hear 
like the Everly Brothers after Skiffle, yeah, then yeah. Brut, and then Buddy Holly. Oh yeah, and people then then you know all those other people, Roy Orbison, yeah, Del Shannon. Oh yeah, all those. So and and so we became that kind of pop group, and it, anything that was in the charts, we were expected to play. So you, you mean you got and real, I went and you, I went from playing an, an acoustic Spanish guitar. Yeah, had to make my first electric guitar. You made it. Yeah, I made it. Another one. You were just making guitars. Well, yeah, that's how you couldn't afford to buy one. You could buy a house for the same price as, yeah. a, as a Fender guitar. Right. Yeah, it was, it was insane prices. So you made an electric guitar? Yeah, I made. I copied a Fender Stratocaster. Uh huh. Um, because the first Fender Stratocaster came over in, I think, late nineteen sixty-two. Uh huh. And. It was almost like something that had landed from outer space. Yeah. <laughs> we looked at this thing that this that Hank Marvin of the Shadows was playing, and it, and it was making a sound that was so unusual. Uh-huh. And, and the same thing as Buddy, Buddy yeah. Holly had had one too. And we thought, oh, what is this guitar? You know, <laughs> we're, we're, anyway, we've got to have one, got to have one, got to yeah. have one. But like I say, you could have bought a house right. cheaper than the guitar. Yeah. So... I went to um, I went. I thought I'll make one because I I was now working in the metalwork factory and we had benches and saws and all kinds yeah, of sure. stuff that I could do a lot more than I ever could on at home. And um, so I went up to London and and looked at one in in a shop window in Charing Cross Road and got yeah. some rough med- measurements through the window of this guitar, just ogling it. I mean, drooling yeah. <laughs> at the mouth. And and built this guitar out of mahogany. Yeah. Uh, and it looked just like a Fender. It was, and I had it sprayed bright pink, just like a pink Fender. What'd you use for pickups? Uh, I had a friend who worked for a, 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 an electric guitar company called Burns uh-huh. Guitar Guitars, who were just down the road from where I worked in Acton. And, you know... He, he as, got you as a couple. All yeah, you know, it was not one piece at a time out the door. You know, the Johnny yeah. Cash song was yeah. a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the pickups, you man, we managed, and I got the proper machine heads. And I made this thing, and it looked just like a Fender guitar, only there was a little kind of snag that my Fender guitar was just about... Um, quite a lot bigger than a Fender guitar because <laughs> yeah. the window had been magnified all the yeah, measurements yeah. and it weighed a ton yeah, mahogany weighed, yeah. yes <laughs> but it worked and it sounded okay and it, we, so we could then go on to playing some real proper rock music you know? pop songs rock yeah, music yeah. And um, we had one amp. Everything went went through one amp. Uh, no microphones. You just sang loud. Yeah. You know, that's where we got our voices from. And you're working, though. You're doing but, shows. Well, we're doing youth clubs and yeah. things. But then as that progressed, and I met John, who made his first bass guitar. John Entwistle. John Entwistle. He made his first bass, too? He made his first bass guitar. I love this. I never uh, heard this whole element of, of, of that yeah, sort of yeah. post-war England well, experience. Richard made his first guitar. Who it was, did? It's quite Keith common. Did? Keith did? Keith Richard. Oh, yeah, I, he, I talked to him. I didn't know he made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he made his first guitar. Um, quite a few of us did. We were, we were hungry to do what we dreamed of doing for the rest of our lives and the idea of getting a new one was just out of the question couldn't afford oh, I'll, it i'll forget it yeah unless you robbed the bank yeah yeah <laughs> so and so you met where'd you meet him i met him on the street and uh i'd seen him at school because 
he was uh, both him and Pete were at my, my same grammar school. Yeah, they were a year younger than me, but you couldn't hide either of them in a crowd of thousand people. Yeah, because they they just had something about them. Pete, obviously, from his from his nose when he was yeah. young, because it <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and we were so skinny. Yeah. Uh, and John had this strange walk. But he had this kind of John John Wayne walk. Oh yeah. That, um, <laughs> so he 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 stood out too. Uh, and I met him on the street and and had a chat with him. Had a look at his homemade guitar, which was much more rudimentary than my my ones. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, do you want to? You in a band? He said, yeah, I'm in a trad band. We play trad jazz. I play tram trumpet most of the time. And I'm just learning this this thing, the, the bass. Yeah. I said, well, we're looking for a bass player. Do you want to be in my band? And he said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so then I said to him, you know, well, you know, are you getting paid, your yeah. band? And he said, no. I said, we are. <laughs> yeah. And that was that, huh? <laughs> but we weren't. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that. And I said, come along to rehearsal. And he came along to rehearsal. Yeah. And he was quite obviously, a, 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 he was a talented guy. Um and you're playing like, uh, are you playing we, we, Buddy Holly? We're or playing, you playing Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers, yeah. any, anything that's in the charts, anything that. We, and you're singing. Yeah, uh, I'm singing some of it. We had a singer who wanted to be Cliff Richard. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Everybody wanted to be Cliff, the English Elvis, you know. Yeah. Pathetic. Yeah, but you were primarily <laughs> but not, he, not that Cliff's a bad singer because he's a good singer. But sure. he, no way was he ever going to be Elvis, right? Um, but you were mostly focused on playing at the time. Yeah, mostly focused yeah. on playing. But uh, yeah, and we had a, this lead singer, and he would do um, he would do most of the singing. I'd do some of it. So you pull Entwistle in, and then, then Entwistle comes in, and and the guy who was the rhythm player at that time. I used to play lead guitar. Yeah, Entwistle was on bass, and, and the rhythm player was the guy who owned the amp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't very good. And John, after about six weeks, John said, look, you know, we're not going to get anywhere with, with, with Reg on the, on the rhythm, um, but I know a really good rhythm player. Do you mind if we, uh, we give him a try? So I said, no, let's give him a try. And along comes Pete. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and to his credit, um, uh, uh, Reg was very gracious and bowed out, but still lent us the amp for a while. Oh wow, that's good! Uh, and immediately Pete came in. It was quite obvious from his ability on that guitar. Did he have a real guitar, it, or did he make he one? Had, no, he had. He had the neck. Of, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> <laughs> what? He had the neck of a guitar with yeah. a really crappy body. Yeah. Um, uh, so I immediately made him a new body for the for a neck that was was a really quite a good guitar yeah. that he kept for quite a while. But he, immediately it was very obvious that Pete's talent was extraordinary because he was playing chord shapes that we'd never seen uh -huh. the like of. Yeah, and his rhythm playing because his part in the jazz band that John was in was as a banjo player, so as a five string banjo player, so. All those things were in Pete uh, early on. It, so very early on, it was yeah. quite obvious that this guy was something special. Was he playing uh, open tuning or was he playing standard tuning? You no, don't standard remember. tuning yeah. in those days. But he just had a feel for it. He that had was a unique. feel for it. He had a feel for it. 
Uh, so we went there, we went on like that, and we got we got some bigger equipment. Yeah, we didn't get very good equipment, but we made it look big. Yeah, because it was all about image in those days. And you're still playing covers, and we're playing covers. Anything that people requested, we got. We managed to get a, a, a job um, in a, an American Air Force base. Yeah, uh, officers' club uh-huh. in, in Bayswater in London every yeah. Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And, of course, the, the GIs would always be requesting all music we'd never even heard of. Yeah. So we were then expected the next week to and figure it out. It, yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> like what? We might lose the job, you yeah. know. Johnny Cash, uh, all kind of, you know, oh, you name it, Chuck Berry. So you had to go find it? Started. Yeah, we had to go find it and learn it, yeah. And then we'd do our versions of it, and they just appreciate that you appreciate yeah. that you tried for them <laughs> that's nice and um of course within a very short space of time our, we progressed immensely we were then doing roy orbison i used to sing the roy orbison i used to sing the del shannon i had incredible incredible range I, I used to sing the johnny cash yeah colin couldn't do that stuff yeah and that's so, when i started to become a singer uh-huh a proper singer well well those are those are good ones to learn from huh no bad, eh? <laughs> yeah. So when when did you start? Uh, like, because I, I mean, didn't weren't you guys focused initially on um, on more R and B stuff? No, the R and B. No, up? no, no. The R and B stuff didn't come until nineteen sixty, very early sixty three. Uh huh. The, the the thing that was the the big impact, uh, and I still remember it. The yeah. first time we all heard "Love Me Do." By the Beatles. Oh that, boy, that, that was the key key in the ignition. Yeah, of that creative period to write to start to start doing in Britain. Yeah, yeah. what was that? Sixty two. That was in uh, Love Me Do was late sixty two, wasn't it? Yeah. Early sixty three, and then right on the on the uh, on the tail of that, Pete met a friend called Tom Wright at art school, who had all this Bob Dylan. Oh, uh, the guy with the records. Yeah, the guy with the records, and he yeah. had a lot of Jimmy Reed, yeah. John Lee Hooker, yeah. you know, uh, Howlin' Wolf, Lightning Hopkins, all that stuff. Yeah, and that well, that's when we started to listen to it. We didn't play much of it out with the kind of places we were playing. People wanted to dance, and yeah. they wanted to have what was in the top twenty. That's what we were doing. Pete immediately wanted to start playing this bluesy stuff. Yeah. At the same time as that, we saw a guy called Johnny Kidd. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy called Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Yeah. And Johnny Kidd was, was uh, had a three-piece band. Yeah. No rhythm guitar, just lead guitar, bass drums, and a singer. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. Trio. You know, yeah, trio. Yeah. Make more money each. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we started to do a lot of Johnny Kidd covers, and they were... They were kind of like halfway between the bl- blues and pop. And the, because you take the rhythm guitar away, it was the perfect thing for a guitarist like of Pete's what was to become his ability, you know, his, his him in full flow. Right. It was the perfect vehicle. Because he could really kind start. of do yeah. that rhythm thing. He could that do the do. rhythm. Yeah. And then he could go off and pick some kind of solo out of yeah. it and expand on it. Yeah. And so we well then we started to do Johnny Kidd covers and we were like a, a Johnny Kidd mimic band. Uh-huh. But it used to go down great and I could sing the shit out of that stuff. Yeah. 
and then slowly but surely we start introducing like Howling Wolf and then all these all these other things. And you're living in London. We were at the time. Where were you living? Oh, living in London. Yeah. So like at that time, like were you seeing the Stones around? Were you seeing any of them around? The Stones had their first hit in sixty late sixty three. Yeah. With Chuck Berry song, "Come On." Come on, yeah. Yeah. And they were playing just down the road from us. They used to play the same clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, in, on quite a few occasions, we supported them as their support act. Uh huh. And of course, we saw them. I was quite, you know, I used to be quite friend, good friends with Brian, Brian Jones. Yeah. Was he a good guy? He was. He was a really nice guy, Brian. Yeah. yeah. I got on great with Brian. Um, what about Terry Reid? Do you know Terry? Uh, well, I, I, no, I didn't. He was Scottish, wasn't he? Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what a great singer! Yeah, right. And you can still see he's still got the chops. Oh yeah, man. Oh, he's, he. Oh God, what a great! Well, he's singer. the one who taught me about this. That you know, the, well, like in London at the time, there were the blues guys, there were the the pop guys, but there was also this kind of white R and B trip going on. That there were real soul singers. In, yeah. in Britain at the time. I didn't know about that. That's right. There was Stevie Winwood came yeah, from that sure. period. There was a guy, a guy called Chris Farlow, a guy called Georgie Fame, Zoot Money. Mm-hmm. There was all these, yeah, there was some really good stuff going on. And, of course, what what what, what happens uh, by the, them doing that is that, 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 you know, artists like Sonny Boy Williamson and Jimmy... Yeah. Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker, Howling Wolf, they all used to come over to England and they couldn't believe it because they were treated like kings. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they come from the South, you know. Right. We, you know what, we know what they were treated like down there. Yeah. They couldn't believe, they just loved Did it. Did you go see him? Well, they used to come up and jam with us. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know Sonny Roy Williamson did quite a few shows with us at the Marquee. No kidding. Can, can I do a number with you? As if we were going to say no. <laughs> that must have been that must have been amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. So what what started uh, the the sort of uh, the shift into like writing your own work, writing your own stuff? Well, that started that that was quite kind of becoming obvious when we we got into 1964. Yeah, and we got a recording contract, and we had a, a new manager, a guy called Peter Meaden. Yeah. Who recognised the fact that that you know there were too many Stones lookalike bands of which we were one. Yeah, uh, and he said, "Can you got this? You know, it's all about image because the, the, the Beatles have done their image, the Stones have done their, their their image, but there's this new thing coming get, going on, yeah. which I was very aware of because my sister, younger sister Carol, went out with what I considered to be one of the first mods I ever saw. Yeah." And he came from a place in London called Lewisham, uh-huh. uh, and he had a scooter, and he had. Uh, they used to. He used to wear these kind of herringbone tweed, yeah, very, very tailored, but very wide at the bottom, kind of bell-bottom, yeah, trousers, PVC jackets, uh-huh. unlike anybody on the street. Uh-huh. And um, that was the, the first mod I ever, ever became aware of. And Pete Meaden convinced us that we. We had a chance if we, uh, you know, did, did things a little bit differently, especially our look. Yeah. We could become the band for this. For the mods. For the mods. When when did you pick up Keith Moon? Did I miss that? Where, well, when? you did miss, oh, but it doesn't matter. You know, he, he, he kind of flew in one night. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you find that guy? Well, he just turned up at the front of the stage hearing that we'd, 
we were looking for a drummer. We'd sacked our drummer and we were looking for someone. Yeah. And he played in a band that was doing Beach Boys songs. Yeah. I <laughs> can't mean, imagine it. You know, I know. I mean, uh, you know, um, this is kind of Wembley in London. Yeah. In 1963, late 63. Yeah. Beach Boys, it's, it's so juxtaposition. Yeah. You know, dingy, grey, <laughs> wet. <laughs> <laughs> and there they are doing sunny California. But anyway, Moon just loved Beach Boy music. Did he? But it, yeah. And, and he turned up in front of the stage and just said, I can, you know, I hear you're looking for a drummer. Could you, can I have a try? Because I can play better than the guy there. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, you know, yeah. cocky little sod. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he, the, he he got on this guy's drum kit. The guy can't, kindly let him use it. Yeah. And we played a version of Bo Diddley's Roadrunner. Yeah. Uh, and which kind of started, and it was great, and it was really good. This kid could off, obviously yeah. play. Yeah. But then halfway through, this was when Pete was starting to get into the early kind of feedbacky type solos yeah and really stretching out and when pete went into this in 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 roadrunner moon kind of doubled up the beat and it became it was just it was really like starting up a jet engine yeah all of a sudden our what would you call it our algorithm yeah that, that existed between the four of us was found and it was it was it was we came together in a completely different way on that and, one tune yeah immediately and so you, you know at the end of the song he'd broken the bass pedal <laughs> immediately destructive yeah. we should have known that but it should have been a warning to us <laughs> what would you have done though <laughs> but anyway so you know you come along to rehearsals he said he was never asked to join the band I think asking him to come along to rehearsals was pretty much asking him to join the band. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he just brought this whole other element, and him and Ke and him and Pete fed off of each other, and I guess John too. I mean, that yeah, whole yeah. all of you, yeah. And do you, like when you think back on that time, do you miss? Like, do you miss Keith? Do you? Do think? I miss him? Of course I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's the Pope of Catholic. Yeah. Of course I miss him. Yeah. You know, he was the funniest man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> but, but he was also, he could also be a nightmare. Yeah. No, really? He, oh. oh. <laughs> so every, everything about Keith was, everything about his personality, every side of it was was enormous. Yeah. He could be the, the most loving, the most hateful, the most spiteful, the most caring the funniest, the saddest. Oh, yeah, all just, of it. He was a real box of chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after you guys like gel like that, you realize the possibilities, and I guess like, I guess Pete was like, well, this is the window. This is where I can, we can really I can work with all you guys, and we can all work together and take some chances, huh? Well, yeah, yeah, but then we needed to get an original song to do. We went, we we, we went to this guy's house who had a huge blues collection. And yeah, we tried to find a song that we thought would make a potential single. Yeah, um, and we found, uh, I think it was a John Lee Hooker song. Got love if you want it. Yeah, got, I got love. love if you want it, baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's great. And Pete Meaden. Wait, uh, so uh, Swim Harper. Oh, was it Slim Harper? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. God, my, 
Got a bit of memory of me then. <laughs> it's going. <laughs> the dementia's on its way. <laughs> comes, comes to all who wait. Yeah. <laughs> Slim Harpo, that's right. Slim Harpo, that's right, yeah. And Pete Meaden said, no, we can't do those lyrics. This has got to be a mod song. So he basically plagiarised it. He just took the melody and rewrote this song, um, uh, I'm the Face, which was a mod term, you know, about... You, you had to be a face, you're a snappy dresser. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a style thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that became our first single as a group called The High Numbers, um, which he convinced we, incidentally, we as the pop band, we were The Who. Yeah. We were The Detours. That was the first one? Yeah, it was the first name. Then we were The Who. Yeah. Then Pete Meaden convince us to become the high numbers the high numbers to be this mod band yeah um after the who you had the who before the high numbers yeah yeah so we said all right we became the high numbers and sure enough what it did it started to attract this mod audience uh-huh and this i'm a face record plus the fact by this time pete is into the full feedback right um starting to know, get destructive banging the speakers yes um, not quite the destruction yet, but you know, really getting some sounds that were yeah. very, very unusual. Yeah, the sounds that Jimi Hendrix copied off of him, that we, you know, he became kind of more famous than Pete. Pete was first. Oh, Pete was first. So what happened that? Do, do you, were you at that show when Hendrix showed up too? What do you in, mean in London? The first time he went to London. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well Hendrix was signed to our. We, we signed. We, we were supposed to have 40% of track records. Yeah. Uh, not that we ever got anything. But, I mean, um, I have a letter from uh, from Chris Stamp. The, 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 For the uh, label? Uh, yeah, which was the, the label. Yeah. Um, which which Jimmy was signed to. In England. So, technically, we should have had 10% of Jimmy Hendrix's <laughs> record contract. But we never saw a bloody penny. Anyway... But, um, but I heard that uh, when he came, like, who was I talking to? It might have been Terry Reed about that. The first performance that uh, Chaz, uh, who, was the, who was the guy from the animal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack had, Chandler. Had he, he did the, the first one at Blaze's Club, and we were, were everyone was there. and we Right. Were, it was just, like, stunning. He'd go to that place anyways, and he was at the back at the bar, and the, Hendrix was on stage, and Brian Jones came through the audience to the bar, and he walked up to Terry Reed, and he said, it's terrible up there, the flooding. And Terry Reed's like, what are you talking about? It's like, the water on the floor. And Terry Reed said, what are you talking about? It's like, all the guitar players are crying. They're all crying. <laughs> That's Brian's. It yeah. a great, great dry sense. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Every, I mean, it was stunning. I'm, yeah. I was glad I wasn't a guitar player that night. <laughs> <laughs> but like no, Cla he was stunning. He was stunning. Like Clapton was there and Page was yeah, there. And they, they were all, all there. there. Everybody was there. Black Beck was there. Pete was there. Everyone yeah. was there. What was Pete's reaction? What was your reaction? Well, I was just, I was just amazed that this guy, was, you know, he was so primal. Yeah. He, was just, he was such a great showman. Yeah. And... And the band was so good. He had Mitch Mitchell on the drums and Noel Redding on the bass. And they don't get enough credit either because yeah. they were, again, how they managed to find that chemistry. Because those guys, Jimmy Jimmy could be incredibly unpredictable when he's playing. He could be playing one thing one minute and he'd switch on the, you know, a, 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 the f just the blink of an eyebrow. Yeah. But they, those guys would stay with him every, every bit of the they way. Follow, yeah. That's telepathy. Yeah. And but you guys had that too, get, right? They, we do it too. But yeah. they, those two guys 
kind of never got any credit at all, but they were they, they were incredible. I bet Mitch Mitchell's drumming was phenomenal. Yeah, and Noel Redding's bass playing. You listen to him; he sticks with Jimmy every note of the way. Yeah, and Mitch, it seems like Keith is is, is similar in, in terms of his momentum yeah. and how he well, played. Mitch came up from the same area of us. We in London we we, we knew all those guys yeah. growing up Ronnie Wood all those guys I've known Ronnie, Ronnie Wood since he was 15 years old you did yeah <laughs> was he always the same yeah he's always the same <laughs> <laughs> he does love a party yeah <laughs> so you knew the faces and all those guys yeah yeah, yeah. So, but I imagine that when Hedrix came, that was a big kick in the ass to everybody on some level. Did it have an impact where you're like, we got to... Of course it had an yeah. impact. It had an impact on everybody. Yeah. But equally, you could, you know where you were going to get near to what he was doing. Sure. Uh, but Pete got quite angry because he he had... He, 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 the feedback the, thing. The feedback thing and the guitar on the, you know, up the... All, all that stuff yeah. into the speakers. Pete was doing that three years before, and it was kind of, you can imagine it must have been a bit heart wrenching for yeah. Pete. Jimmy had obviously seen it somewhere, or Chaz had told him about it. Right, and right. You know, this, if you do this, it'll, you'll do it better than him. Uh. And and Jimmy could do, make it something much, you know, kind of much more flamboyant. Yeah. Pete, you know. Well, Pete's pretty flamboyant. He, it was, it, yeah, but it was kind of it was it. it there was something more sensual about it when right. Jimmy did it. Uh, right. it was, we were more just destructive. Yeah. And Bill Pete's got that windmill. That's his, right? It's hardly sensual, is it? No. no I mean, a windmill's a bit like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's maybe you were more about fuck you <laughs> as opposed to like, someone fuck us. You were fuck you. <laughs> How about the Kinks? Were they they were like around? Well, they were around, um, and that. So then we get into nineteen sixty four. Yeah, and we're now supporting people like the Stones. Yeah, we supported the Beatles. You did? Yep. Where? We supported the Beatles at the Blackpool Opera House in August. I think it was August uh, uh, nineteen sixty four. You get along with them and the Kinks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were just you know a bunch of <laughs> Liverpool guys, you yeah, know, right. to us. Yeah, and and the Kinks were on the same show. Yeah, um, we did quite a few shows with the Kinks. They were great. Yeah. They were a great band. Good, good showman, Ray Davis. Yeah, um, and of course they had uh, uh, "You Really Got Me" and "All Day and All of the Night" those right. kind of singles. And that's when Pete wrote "Can't Explain," which was a, basically a, a almost. A kinks copy, but with lyrics were, that were kind of from a different space. Right, they? right, yeah. A little more uh, uh, existential, a little more, yeah, you know, yeah. like I don't questioning. Know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you had to think about them a yeah. bit more. Wasn't, yeah. quite, wasn't quite so in your face. Right. But it probably fit in with the, with the, the sentiment well, it, it, of the again, mods. It, it, it fitted in with the mod thing, yeah. because the mod thing now was starting to get into kind of early drug scene which right. was amphetamine yeah Oof. which was speed yeah you know I've got a feeling inside can't, can't explain, explain. Yeah, yeah. my head's about to pop off <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so anyway so that so that it worked for that and then we had and then we had an American producer Cheryl Talmay who produced the kinks doing yeah. the record so it kind of although it it, it did it was a hit and it was our first hit and I'm very, yeah. very grateful for it it always felt that it was never quite the who as I liked it. Yeah. Um, we, we, he brought in a load of backing singers, you know, that that kind of, uh, um, they were called the Ivy League. Yeah. And put those backing vocals on it. 
Jimmy Page played the lead guitar on it because in those days you had to record live and he didn't want Pete to do his kind of uh, original, far more original than anything Jimmy Page did on it. Yeah. Uh, but you, but know, you went we, along we, with it? Well, we had to. You yeah. know, in those days, anything to get a record made and have a chance at getting, getting a record. And Jimmy at that time was just a studio guy? He was just a studio session musician, yeah. 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 And very, so, very young. Yeah, so that so that puts you on the map, though, right? Can't explain. But it put us in the map. Yeah. Put us on the map. We we got our first top of the pops, and then we, you know, we got on our first TV shows, and then of course along came, um, any anyway, anyhow, anywhere. Yeah. Which uh, again had much more of what the who were all about. Right. But then we had to kind of have a some kind of link to the first record with the backing vocals, which we did ourselves. But we had, um, uh, you know, and go anyway, way I choose. Yeah. So had that kind of repeat thing. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the, when you listen to the to the outro of that, the, the record company sent the, the first pressings of that record back because they thought it was a, a bad pressing. They thought there's, there's a fault on this record. Why? Because the feedback. Oh, they didn't understand it. They didn't get it at all. <laughs> well, that was the real sound of The Who in those days, which we'd never had on Can't Explain. Yeah. Because we'd had Jimmy Page's tidied up. Yeah, yeah. Solo. Yeah. yeah. Um, so but we, that would so that's your so uh, that that song anytime yeah. and that that one got you into your own sound yeah and then that led into yeah. my generation yeah and then we have substitute generation oh yeah and that substitute. was all easy stuff you know? when when did the seeker come out when, what oh, I can't remember oh, I love oh that was sixty eight I love that song yeah sixty eight seeker's a great song it's a great song man it was sixty eight that guitar on that song and you yeah. belting it up yeah man. good sentiment that's when Pete got into into kind of Eastern religion and found Mayor Barber and all that stuff, which later on inspired Tommy. Uh, so that was a, a really good period. We, in between my generation and and that period, yeah, that was probably the darkest period for, which, for what, me in the who. What, the, what, for uh, who, the sellout and uh, quick one? No, 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 no. The, the, the uh, I'm a boy, the Happy Jack period. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Pictures of Lily. And, yeah, yeah, that was a uh, tough I, time. It was, a, it was a tough time for me as a singer because, you know, I'd, I'd been thrown out of the band after my generation. Yeah, well, th well, that was like, that came to a head because of drugs, right? Because of drugs, because they, they, we went on our first um, European tour. Yeah. And they managed to get hold of a huge pile of amphetamine. The other guys, or you did? The other guys. Oh, I, yeah. I, I couldn't do them. I I tried it when because we, we used to sometimes play two shows a night. Yeah. You know, one we'd finish at 11 o'clock. 11 p.m. Yeah. And then we start another one at two in the morning. morning. Right. Yeah. And then we finish at five in the morning. Yeah. So to stay awake, I tried them, but I couldn't sing. So Tighten you up to, your throat? Yeah. Yeah. Dried you up. And I, I just thought there's two ways this can go. I can either do this and and stay awake and be a shit singer. Yeah. Or I'll just have to do my best and, uh, and be tired and be a good singer. Yeah. So I couldn't do them. But the others good, right? You can take as many as you like if you're playing the drums, sure, or, or playing the guitar. Change the rhythm a little bit, but that was the problem. And when we did the first tour of, when we did the first tour of Europe, they got a huge pile of amphetamine, and it, it slowly, progressively through the tour got um, worse and worse and worse, and the music got faster and faster, louder and louder. 
Was that I, mostly on Keith? No, the whole band. Yeah. The whole band. And it was a cacophony. Yeah. I, it got so fast on the last show we did in Denmark, but I could hardly get the words to the songs in. So I, while they were smashing the gear up, I decided I was going to do something about it. I came off the stage, I found their stash, and I flushed it all down the toilet. Uh-huh. That's not great for people who like drugs. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's needless to say, three against one. Yeah. Uh, and the one mostly was Keith, because yeah. I took it out of his suitcase and flushed them. And immediately he came off the stage, he went, went to his suitcase and said, you know, where's my stash? And I said, well, it's, it's gone down the toilet. And he, he flew at me with a tambourine, attacked me with a tambourine, which doesn't sound like very much. Yeah. It's a nice, soft, yeah. pigskin <laughs> instrument. And it's going to sound but exciting. The, the only thing yeah. is he was slashing at me with the bells. Oh, yeah, right. Which is a whole different thing because sure. he could have... They got an edge to him. He could have, yeah, he yeah. could have shredded me. So needless to say, he didn't get very far. Yeah. I was a good fight, a good street fighter in those days and... Um, and and uh, put him on the floor, and and the band threw me out for fighting. Was that the first fight in the band? Oh no, we'd always we'd had lots of fisticuffs before, but this was a, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, who was usually the fighting? bells of the tambourine took it to another level. Oh, okay, and yeah. I, a deci- weapon. I decided to give him a good pasting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but in in the previous way, who who was usually hitting each other? It was usually Pete and I hitting each other. Sometimes we hit Pete. Um, <laughs> very rarely Keith. Um, but, you know, it would just be a, a punch in the thumb. About what? Ah, oh, just verbal. Yeah. You know how you are. We were, we were four alpha males yeah. with testosterone kicking in. You yeah. know. Is it any wonder we had a few fights? But was it musical? Usually musical. About why, um, you know? You know, well, I can't, you can't, I can't remember specific things. Yeah. But you know it is when you're that age. Right. Did you never have fights with your friends? I was never a fist guy. No? No, I was Well, a, you're a verbal guy. Yeah, a verbal guy. So you guy. just had a lot of punches on the nose. Yeah. yeah for I, being too verbal. You would have hit me, You yeah. weren't a clever sod. Yeah, yeah exactly. A cocky cunt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, that's right. That was a... But, but also very diplomatic right when it got... <laughs> When it got you ugly, to be. yeah, you gotta be diplomatic when it got ugly. Maybe we can do this another day. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe maybe we can meet in the middle on this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's when I'd get. It. I didn't. I managed not to get a hit. We'll see if we make it through this. <laughs> so so what happened? So you got kicked out of the band, and that was. I that? got kicked out of the band, and um, uh, I was fine about that. I thought, oh well, you know, I started this band. Um, I'll start another one. You know, how old was I? 20, 21 years yeah. old. Plenty of time to start another one. I knew by now I could sing. I've yeah. hit records under my belt. Yeah. Um, I thought I'd start another one. I was going to do a soul band. But then they went out and they did a few shows without me, which I gather didn't go down very well. They got, right. They got booed off, apparently. And the management, sort of three or four weeks later, um, came and saw me. They said, look, Roger... It, they, they they said to the band anyway. Yeah. Apparently, they said to the band, "Look, you've got to take him back because it's not working." And then they came to see me. They said, "Look, you've got to go back. It's not working." And and, and I said, "Well, you know, they've thrown me out." And they said, "Well, they have you back as long as you promise not to fight anymore." I said, "Okay." I said, "I'll I'll do that." I said, "But I'll only go back if they promise not to take drugs bef- before they go on the stage anymore." Yeah, I said I don't care what they do afterwards. None of my business, but I can't be with a band 
who've got potentially so much talent who throw it all out the window because they're popping stuff down their throats. And they agreed, I agreed. We didn't have another fight then for years. Yeah. Um, Did they slow down on the drugs? And they, to their credit, they... Wait, wait, what they did after I don't know what they did I don't care you know <laughs> well I don't well, Keith, well Pete certainly did Pete, Pete didn't do any drugs all the way through the 70s yeah. I mean really nothing I yeah. mean he only it's only after Keith died that I think that was just I think that was just the loss and the, and the grief and everything else when he started drinking pressure, yeah. yeah when he started drinking yeah so I remember Pete Pete was really really Super clean. So, what about the like the whole? Because I mean, Keith Moon is sort of like uh, known for establishing the hotel room behavior. Yeah, well, he was very good at that. Yeah. He was very good at that. But he was one of the originators. He was, he was a remodeler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just kept the show going. Yeah. 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 Because I talked to Joe Walsh recently. Oh uh, yes, he yeah. was quite good at it too. <laughs> I think he was one of his Keith's apprentices, wasn't yeah, he? He? <laughs> <laughs> he was in destruction. So, so then you entered the period where you did what? Tommy and who's next? And and and, uh, and did, yeah, Tommy was the big big one that broke you know the store. That was it that, that broke the back of the industry. So we became really well known. Yeah, um, it just hit at the perfect time, and that you know the genius of Tommy. A lot of that came from Kit Lambert, who always, his father was a, a, a composer yeah. in England, founded the Saddler's World's Ballet Company. He um, always felt that the three-minute pop song could be much, much more. Yeah. And he said, we should do an opera. Because he was into opera. He, right. He was into all that. Right. His father did. Um, he said, you know, this, rock can be an opera. We should do an opera. So we did a mini opera on... on on the record, a quick one. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that second time. And then, and then, and then we then we started work on Tommy, which went on for about three months in the studio, piecing bits together. And out it came, and it hit at a time when, as you know, America was in the Vietnam War. Youngsters were getting conscripted. Yeah. And that album just spiritually seemed to speak to them, because they, you know, they felt deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah. They, they felt not seen or heard right and it also came out of no your childhoods too right in the uh, in the war yeah yeah so it it you know it just resonated and worked and we did woodstock and people kind of went wow and then it, it just grew and grew and grew you had a tough spot at woodstock too right everybody had a tough spot at yeah. Woodstock. the stars of woodstock were the audience yeah I mean, but it was like five in the morning or something. Five right? in the morning, we went on, but someone went on after us. I don't know who that yeah. was. I mean, <laughs> so they had it worse than us. Don't you worry about that. And you, mean, did you throw Abby Hoffman off the stage too? I didn't. Pete did. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I know, wonderful, wonderful, good old. Yeah, he said. Anyone else gets up here, I'll kill him. And he meant it. <laughs> That's what Pete Peace, did. Peace, love, and rock and roll. <laughs> what happened? Abby got on to give a little speech. Yeah, and... he's giving a speech about uh, John Sinclair. You know, from MC Five, yeah, right? Because he was in jail, right? You know, but the trouble is, he got on our stage, right, in front of Pete. Yeah, you know, and we were British. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the end of Do that your statement. Speech later. <laughs> So and so that's where they, they blew up and and everything 
changed? And how many years after the the album did you make the movie? The movie didn't come till nineteen. We made the movie in nineteen seventy four. Oh, wait! Yeah. And it came out in nineteen seventy five. Yeah, wait, wait. So that was the, after- the, it. Was the movie of Woodstock that really put us on the map? Right? Yeah, I mean, right. They, you know, the Who were just visually amazing. In right, that and, and put you know that really. And then, and then, who's next? That was another huge fucking record. Yeah, game so ahead of its time. Yeah, didn't make number one. You know that record. Yeah. No, no, no. People didn't get it. They thought this is funny noise. What's all these? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It won't get fooled. I mean, that was huge. Yeah. Well, um, we found out later that that our record company will remain nameless, but you can look it up. They were bootlegging out. They were bootlegging us out the back door. No shit. We were being bootlegged by our own record company. No wonder we didn't make number one. It was impossible for us to. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. But it, to lots of people. It did. That was just the business. Dirty business. It's a shit business. Yeah. But you survived. You did all right. Yeah, well, listen, I'm still here. That's all I care about. Yeah. Pete had written... Pete was going through a very difficult period of writing. Yeah. That kind of first... First kind of tremors of middle-aged angst. Uh-huh. Cre- creeping in. Yeah. Um, I'm too old to be doing this, and you know, it's all over. Oh, um, really? You know, and we were like 31, 30. Yeah. But that's it's crazy, a, but, you know, it's, that's what's so ge- such genius about Townsend. Yeah. That he had the ability to write about what's going on in him so deep down, you know. But then he just threw a load of songs at me. He said, I don't know if any of this is any good. Yeah. Here's a load of songs. You choose what the ones go on the album. And he was totally surprised at what I chose. Oh, yeah. Because I chose... In some ways, the most vulnerable ones. Yeah. It's wonderful songs that give you a hint yeah. of the mid-laugh crisis of to Pete. come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At 33 or yeah. whatever. <laughs> no, I think he was... Th- well, this we, is 1975, so well, Pete would have been tw- Pete would have been 30. So he hadn't even got here 33 yet, you know. Wow. <laughs> so that's what I found so intriguing about those songs, and I chose them. Yeah. And and he would he's always said he said I was I was shocked by what Roger chose yeah you know um, what's that one blue red and grey right which I just loved he said and and Pete I don't know whether he he's, he would do it now but I used to say to him please Pete play blue red and grey on stage you know it's wonderful and it, the way you sing it is wonderful. And he's saying, oh, you know, I look fucking stupid playing a ukulele. Oh. <laughs> so I do it. I do it on my own solo show, you know, because like, I love it so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, that's so nice that their relationship was like that, <laughs> that he told you to pick him, you picked him, and he, and he let you do it. Yeah. And uh, so that was that album. And then, the, the, you know, it was a very, it, it was a tricky time in our career because he'd worked so hard on the Tommy on the, uh, on the movie the or the movie and the soundtrack and he got nominated for an oscar for the soundtrack um was that the first that was the first time you acted too wasn't it yeah it was the first time i acted and then of course our, then we had a bit of a break and then when we came back to it we did a tour in 1976 which turned out to be the last tour we'd ever do with keith yeah and um of course the band was bigger than ever then yeah you know. Yeah, and then uh, it, it, like, and then once you lost Keith, it, how long did you have to like process that? Well, it, that was hard, but you get through it. I mean, 
Pete and I, we, 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 we... Did you see it coming? Well, we saw it coming for too long. That, yeah. That's what made it f such a big shock. Yeah. Because you kind of think, well, he's got nine lives. Yeah. He, he had no fear. Um, I think in today's world, he would have been diagnosed as autistic. Um, and because you come, because he come through it so many times and not died, yeah, so many things where he should have died, yeah, and he, and he didn't. When it when it happened, it was kind of more of a shock. Yeah, kind of weird, weird. Because you you kind of started yeah. believing he was sort of uh, immortal. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, we you know Pete, Pete, John, and I we said you know we, we can either stop or treasure what we really had between us, which is the music. Yeah. Uh, which is what we did. Yeah. You know we. Pete was the writer of this music. I was the singer of it. John was the bass player of it. You know, Keith was obviously irreplaceable with his right. character. Yeah. I've never met ever in my life anyone who comes come anywhere close to being another Keith Moon. Yeah. Um, but you can replace a, a, a drummer. That became incredibly difficult. And we rushed into getting a very good friend of ours Kenny Jones into yeah. the band, who's an extremely good drummer, who drummed with us on, on, he did some drumming on the Tommy soundtrack. Yeah. Um, so we thought he'd be good, and it did, but it didn't work out. He his sense of timing wasn't quite like ours. Um, and the only way I can explain it because Kenny's like I say, an excellent, excellent drummer. Yeah. Just as putting Keith Moon in the faces would have been a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> putting Kenny in, in the Who ended, didn't start out a disaster, yeah. but it ended a disaster. Like how? Because he's just too straight a drummer. But you did three albums with him, or four, right? No, no, we did two. Two. And, it, well, yeah, he couldn't feel like, you know. It's like, no, it just didn't, didn't fit, you know, yeah. didn't, just didn't sit right, you know. Did it end acrimoniously? Um, no, mm. but not. No, were the fans kind of got the kind of, you know, they all take sides and they, they don't quite understand what you're talking about. So it felt like there was acrimony there, but there was never any between Ke Ke Kenny and I, and I. And I have never ever said that he was a bad drummer. Yeah. He's a great drummer. Yeah, he was just the wrong drummer. Who would have been the right drummer though? We, he, we don't know who would have been the right drummer. Yeah. But we should have left the door open. We, you know, you take could have put Mitch. At, Mi look, you could have put Mitch Mitchell in there. You, well, at the time, we could have done. Yeah. He would have been more of the right drummer. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh well. There you go. <laughs> he he, yeah. he, you, you are correct. He would have been far more the right drummer. Yeah. So what, when did that thing in Cincinnati happen? That horrible thing. Uh, that was nineteen seventy nine. So that was with Decem Kenny. December the third. Yeah. What a fucking day. Jesus. What a day. What a day. What I remember that. I'm what a, a night. It was like a, yeah. like a global nightmare. Like it was I, it was all that anyone talked about for like weeks. It was horrible. Yeah. We and and the, the the horrible thing for us was that we we didn't know it had happened and we played the show. We played a great show that night. And the reason they let us play the show and thank God they did because our, our money I mean the, the people since Cincinnati don't realize yeah. what a, a de debt of gratitude they should have towards our manager uh, Bill Kirbishley because the fire department and the police because the accident happened on the way in Coming, the, oh yeah the, the, it was a stampede going it was into a stampede the, going yeah. in 
they only opened two doors or three uh, doors out of 11. General admission. General admission. Right. And, of course, zoom, everyone tried to funnel into this, this right. tiny little space. And people fell over and then they got trampled and 11 people died. Um, the police and the fire department want, wanted to, to stop the show. Yeah. By this time, every, the crowd was in. Uh, and, and, and Bill Kirby, our manager, pleaded with them and almost said to them, are you crazy? You know, if you do that, you're going to have people coming out and you'll have a Mad. riot on your hands. Yeah, they're going you know, to. This, this was an accident. You don't need to be, be dealing with another situation. Right, right. Just, you, just shut this doorway off, screen it off, and deal with this issue. Let the show go on. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so glad that he did. But for us, we just did a, a, we did a great show that night. And to come off stage after a great show and be told oh. the news that, you know, 11 kids had died on the way in. It was, it, I can't tell you. It was like being hit with a sledgehammer. I can't it imagine. It was like being hit in the heart with a sledgehammer. Um, but we stay in touch with fam the families. You and, do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. They have a memorial fund where they provide scholarships Yeah. at, at one of the high schools. This high school lost yeah. three, three students. Yeah. So they provide three three um, scholarships every year, and uh, we we've helped. We, you know, we've been in touch with them for a long time. Yeah, wonderful people. Yeah, I visited them. I w went back and visited the high school in the summer. Yeah. So, you know, because it, 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 it's it's so hard for us, and but it's not as hard for us as it was for them. Yeah, it's a real yeah. sort of defining oh, grief. I can't. Yeah. It's ho it was just. You know, it, 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 oh, to lose people that age is always horrendous. Yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, and it, you just never quite process it, and you do the best you can. And we're doing the out. best we can. Yeah. You can't, you can't change the past. You have yeah. to live with the future, and we're doing the best we can with that. Yeah. And what is wonderful is the people from that community are wonderful, wonderful. Oh, good. And and now, like, when you guys, like, because a lot of things we didn't get to talk about uh, is that, you know, I mean, you've done a, a lot of acting and a lot of movies and television. Yeah, that's my, that's my other job, you know. But I didn't, you know, I, I, I fell in love with the process, but then I was already famous. Yeah. And Tommy was easy for me because it was just music. But I didn't know anything really about acting. But Ken I, Russell, that must have been nuts. Oh, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, that was completely nuts. <laughs> but what a genius director. No kidding, man. Oh. And you're working with all those uh, those amazing uh, musicians, too, like uh, like Tina Turner and Eric Clapton. Yeah, and, yeah, I like, know. Like this. It was just wonderful. But I was playing a character who was deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah. And I was doing it method. And I, so I went through that hardly speaking to anyone. Yeah. Hardly seeing anything. I mean, I laid for a whole day under Tina Turner's skirt. Yeah. And for the life of me, I can't tell you one thing. I About saw. the experience? <laughs> no. And it, I find that, I find it really strange. Well, you were in it. You were in it. Totally in it. Yeah. That space. Because I used to have to turn my eyes off. Because they used to throw things at me and I, you couldn't have any kind of thing going on at all. Was Ken on you for that? Pardon? Was Ken on you for that? Did he make? Did he push you? Uh, oh, Ken yeah. Russell? No, no, I, I, I just did it. But I mean, yeah. uh, he, he'd always, he'd always do 
ten takes of everything. I'm yeah. just can always looking for something unusual to happen. It's a trippy movie, man. But then, but like I say, some of the stuff that was going on and things flying past my head, and the the, the camera reads your eyes more than anything. Yeah. So they had to be completely glazed. Yeah, and you dead. did it. Yeah, yeah. So I just turned them off, but with them wide open. I mean, I don't. It's the weirdest like, time when I think back to that. Yeah. I mean, I hardly spoke to Anne Margaret, who's the sweetest woman you could ever meet. She, but you know, I just had to get my head round. Like, this is my mum. Yeah. And she's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you got the bug, though, to do the acting. I mean, you I could, got the bug to do the acting, and I thought, well, I'm not going to give this up. Yeah. But I'm the kind of guy who had the balls to go out, and I took any acting job. But I had to do, I had to make, make all my mistakes. Because you liked it. But I liked it, yeah. and, and and of course, in in full glare of of, of being a really famous guy. You yeah. Know? But I didn't care. I don't, yeah. I don't care. But in and in the end, I ended up doing Shakespeare and all kinds of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, and, and I've got fabulous reviews, so I I learnt the craft in yeah. the end, yeah. and I'm proud of that. And you did some musicals too, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the Beggars Opera, the yeah. Fripney Opera. Yeah, I did. Uh, Is that fun? I did. I did My Fair Lady at the Hollywood Bowl with John Lithgow. Yeah, just yeah. We did a, a couple a couple of shows there for the city with a, with the LA Philharmonic. That That's was great. Fun. Yeah, 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 great. And uh, I've got great notices for that. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you would musical and acting. I mean, it's together. I mean, that you're made for that. Well, I suppose so, but I don't. I don't want to go in the theatre though. I, I, I don't want to. To me, that would be like going back to the theatre, like going back to the factory. Going back to yeah, yeah. Being like, you know, eight yeah. shows a week. No, 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 no. I, I'm still the gypsy lives. Yeah, lives, lives hard in me. Yeah. And uh, so, where are you and Pete at these days? You talk a lot, or you we working? Don't, we, no, we, he wanted a year off, so yeah. I haven't spoken to him for a year. Oh, that's how that. Goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how we are. I, mean, I respect. That he needs that time away. We love each other, dear. We're brothers. Yeah, uh, and we're dearest friends. And uh, that's all I can say. And you know, we're n we're not gone. Who haven't gone? We, no, we we were very. I was very, um, de very determined after after saying it was our last tour in 1982. That was, I, and I said that, and that came off of my back. Yeah. The, the other guys in the band didn't know I was going to say that, but I knew at that time what a state Pete was in. Yeah. Um, he he'd had quite a run in with heavy drugs. Yeah. And a lot to do with pressure of. The fact that we did didn't have the right drummer, yeah. the band wasn't quite gelling. He was having trouble writing, and all all that pressure was on him. Yeah, he needed the break. So I thought, well, this is going to be the last tour because if we'd have carried on, it would have killed him. Yeah. Uh, so I and I'm no way I'm going to let that happen. So I just announced that out of the blue. Yeah. Um, obviously, it was never going to be the last tour, and I kind sure. of kind of knew yeah. it then. But you both um, did solo stuff too, you know, we worked did some solo stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah, kind of hobby for me that was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, here we are now, and when it came to us announcing our 50th year, yeah. and we're going to go on tour, I said that this is the beginning of the long goodbye. Yeah. And 
we have to be realistic at our age. I'm, you know, I'm 75 next year. I can still, I can still sing the shit out of this stuff. Yeah, Pete can still play it. Yeah, so play it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, all I can say is we don't know how long we'll go, and I don't think you ever retire from this business. I think it retires you when you're a band like the Who. Yeah, because our music deserves and has to have a kind of energy within it that if ever we can't give it that because we are a rock band we're not we're not a good time rock and roll band we're not like the rod stewart faces yeah uh, rolling stones you know bar band do you know yeah. do you know do you understand what i yeah, mean you, we, we're the opposite of that we, it's, yeah. it's a kind power, of a, power chords baby yeah, yeah yeah and it's that and it's on the one yeah it's the slam yeah you know it's not a, it's not music to fuck to yeah ours is music to fight to yeah and if it ever loses that fighting edge yeah which exists between pete and i still to this day will then i'll stop mm -hmm. because then it will be cheating my audience and i've never wanted to cheat them ever because I, I i remember too well from my early years first ticket i ever bought to go and see anybody was to see cliff richard and the shadows yeah in 1962 at the chiswick empire and you know what it took to get the money to buy those tickets and i thought that's what an artist owes it to an audience to yeah. be there for them right and deliver yeah and if you ever stop doing that you're taking a piss fuck off out the business yeah <laughs> that, those are great closing words <laughs> well that's just how i feel about no, it no i think I just, it's i think it's i know, think it's right i think it's people right people work too hard to come and see you you deserve to deliver it yeah you don't want to just like no. sweep walk through you don't want to autopilot no. And I'll tell you another thing about the book, you know, uh, you know what I love about your book is that you know, you can hear your voice in it. You do look, you know what I mean? It's like it's good I hope so. it's good solid storytelling and it's honest, you know what I mean? It's not embellished a lot, you know what I mean? It's very honest. Yeah. Hmm. Did you or did you uh, did you do it all yourself? I worked with a guy. I worked with a guy called Matt Rudd, who's yeah. a journalist. Yeah. But I didn't I wrote my book in a different way than most people do their biography. I didn't have a book deal. Yeah. I don't think you can write a biography on a book deal. Autobiography. No, or, 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 yeah, yeah. Or, autobiography. Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah, well, one, you'd be if you were writing your biography, you'd, you'd, Roger Dahl should be another guy. Maybe that's oh, true. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but... Oh, you don't know me, do <laughs> Where's the real Roger Dahl? Yeah, that was... Who wrote yeah, this yeah, book? So, but, but what I'm trying to say yeah. is, um, I didn't know whether I had one... In me, and, and if you do a publishing deal, all of a sudden they've got a hold on you. Oh, right. you, you take a lump of money, yeah. And I don't believe any of this kind of art or whatever should ever really ever be done initially for the money, right? So I, I thought, well, I don't know whether I've got a book in me, I'm gonna get someone to who I admired as a journalist to, to interview me. Oh, okay, I, yeah. I, and he, we went on for four years, yeah. And I didn't care how long it went on. I paid him. Yeah. Um, and if it had taken 10 years, I wouldn't have cared. I yeah. just, I said, because all I want is a good book. Yeah. And then, and then we, I put it together and put it out there and, and publishers loved it. And I got a book deal. Yeah. But now I'm, I'm there dancing to my drum. Right. You already had the book. And yeah. yeah. And, I, and you know, like the cover, for instance, I fought for that cover. 
Yeah. And the reason I wanted that cover was for reasons I told you earlier. Um, guess what they wanted? What? Just a face with a name. Yeah. You know, just like uh, every other no. autobiography cover. No, that's a, that looks like the that looks like the Roger Daltrey yeah, everybody what, what, knows. But what, what would you notice on the shelf of biographies? Yeah, I, uh, you see right, what I'm trying a, to say. Right, right. But they don't they didn't get it at all. But because I'd done it my way, I could insist that that's the cover. Yeah, it's a good cover. Thank you. It's a good book, <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming by. It's great talking to you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. I thought that was great. He can still sing the shit out of things. I love the way he said that. I can sing the shit out of that. Love it. Just a reminder, folks, we'll have new WTF t-shirts designed by the great Aaron Draplin, available in the merch store at WTFPod.com later this month. But if you're at my Beacon Theater show in New York City on November 10th, you'll be the first ones to get your hands on them. All right? All right. Can't play. Matt Sweeney gave me a guitar, but no amp. I told him I didn't want the app. I appreciate him giving me the guitar so I can noodle around in my hotel room while I'm sitting on my hotel couch on a towel watching Rachel. Boomer lives!